okay. Um, this is uh, a little bit impromptu because I hadn't really expected to have to t give this talk, although I'm thrilled to be able to. Um, and it's interesting to sort of key it off of what Professor Booth just said because um, I'm going to be talking not about the provinciality and, and stay at place, stay at home nature of somebody like Don Quixote, but I'm going to be looking more at the global connections of Spain in this, in this moment. By the way, I have been to La Mancha, and I think that I too would be driven crazy by trying to live there. It's like every point in La Mancha is the middle of nowhere, anyway, in this great country of Spain. Don't you agree? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Um, I wanted to uh, talk, I, I'm, it's, this is going to be very anecdotal, it's only going to be about a few artists, but I wanted to talk a bit about the, um, the international reach and the way styles, artists moved through and around Spain in this time and from Spain to the New World. And so I'm really only going to talk about a very few uh, artists by name. The first, of course, is a very famous one named, did, did, are the lights down more? They are? Okay. Can people see? Okay. Um, Domenico's Theotokopoulos, of course, as we know, we know him much better as El Greco. El Greco. And um, El Greco was a sort of rolling stone in the Mediterranean, gathering moss as he went along picking up styles and transforming himself into the most distinctive artist of Spain of the time. Uh, I'm not going to be talking about Velázquez. I'm not going to be talking about um, Murillo, because, uh, except tiniest bit, because really they come after the period of our time. Uh, so I'm going to talk more about uh, El Greco. He was born in Crete. And um, he was born in Crete in 1541. In 1567, he took a long trip, it probably took about a month, up to Venice and stayed there for three years. In 1570, he moved to Rome. And in 1576, he went on to Spain, where he first tried to work in Madrid and then settled in Toledo for the rest of his life. Um, he was trained as a Byzantine icon painter, okay? And, oh, this is not working today, that's great. He was trained as a Byzantine icon painter, and this is his image from about 1565, when he was in Crete, of St. Luke painting the Virgin, and the Virgin looks every bit like the Byzantine uh, virgins icons that were being made there at the time. Uh, he bears very little resemblance to the El Greco that all of us come to know later on. Um, and this is his Dormition of the Virgin, also in Crete from 15, about 1565. And you can see that it is based very closely on, and that was the point. It was supposed to be based very closely on the model of an icon of the Dormition of the Virgin that had been painted earlier in Crete. He does make one telling little change, which gives you the idea that he is open to the possibility of changing down the road. 
And that is, if you notice, Christ is standing very straight over his dead mother here, uh, holding her soul as a little tiny baby as it escapes from her. Um, here, he is bending over solicitously to care for her. And so this really is a bit of a change. It's a, it's a pretty radical change in iconography for such very uh, formulaic images of the time. So um, he goes to Venice. And almost immediately, you can start to see some things changing. Uh, we're starting to see some more color in his work. Uh, this interesting sort of light that seems to be coming from inside the work. And in this case, no longer a gold background, OK? Um, but still, it has that kind of dark and um, solemn quality of these, of these icons. Then we see him paint something really fascinating, I think. And I think it's one of the most interesting of his works. This is the Modena triptych that he painted in Venice in 1568, right after he gets there. And suddenly, you see this artist who is now playing with classicized form. He's playing with Venetian colors. He's playing with a bit of this mannerist elongation. And struck right in the middle is this totally Byzantine uh, image of Mount Sinai. Okay, he's, he's, It's still a time of really working things out for him and trying a lot of different, different uh, approaches. Two years later, he paints this. Okay, What has happened in the meantime? Look at the space in this image. Look at the light in it. Look at the color in it. Look at the monumentality of the figures. Well, what's happened is that he has paid a lot of attention to people painting in uh, Venice at this moment. The first one being Tintoretto, okay, whose experiments in perspective are opening the, the picture plane for him in a way that Byzantine artists never even conceived, okay, so that suddenly you go way back into space. And then he's also very much looking at the work of Titian, the great colorist of the time, and picking up colors from Titian, okay. Um, and uh, he, however, has a sort of difficult personality. And so he doesn't have a lot of luck getting commissions in any of these places. And uh, in 1570, he moves to Rome, where he actually has a bit of luck in that he gets to stay in the home, in the palace, of um, Alessandro Farnese, who was a very important cardinal. And even with that, he still wasn't able to get many commissions in Rome. And so um, he moves on from Rome. And probably through connections of Farnese's, he goes to Madrid, where he wants to paint for the king of Spain. But the king of Spain can't stand his artwork. Okay. Um, and so he ends up going off to what was basically more a provincial place, not nearly as provincial as La Mancha, believe me, but Toledo. Um, actually, a very intellectual, very uh, highly religious uh, town, not that far away. And he spends the rest of his career there. Um, and he really comes into his own and develops his own style in the 1580s. And some of the work of his that we know and love the best come from the years 
1699 to 1609. But I wanted to show you one of his now very spiritual works. By the way, there's no evidence that he was an incredibly spiritual or religious man himself. But he was uh, extremely sensitive to the mystical uh, religiosity that was going on around him in Toledo and picked up on it with great sensitivity. Um, and this, you know, this Christ carrying the cross now with, he's, he's now foregone that sense of space. He doesn't care about that space anymore. He's very interested in the color and in a luminosity that radiates this divine light that he's picked up in Venice and now is turning to his own. Um, and he is beginning to draw his figures ever more elegantly elongated as if they could just float off out of the world. Uh, this is his burial of Count Orgaz, one of his, Orgath, one of his most uh, famous works from Toledo in which he separates the mundane world down below with, uh, from, from the heavens, and the heavens are this roiling, flowing, just incredibly fluid and mystical sort of area. And then in about 1599, he is painting his, his incredible, uh, a few in, uh, secular images that he's known really well for, his view of Toledo, his Laocoon, and his portraits of some of the various nobles in the area. So this is just an idea of how one artist moving around the Mediterranean can pick and choose and develop different styles and put them together into something that was very, very much his own. By the way, he had no real successors. And the, uh, after he died, his work was not popular. It was thought to be too uh, wacky. It was thought to be too over the top and, and otherworldly. And it really wasn't until Romanticism in the 19th century that he was rediscovered as an artist and suddenly picked up for exactly this sort of uh, religiosity and, and the sense of the sublime, I might say. Okay. Um, and uh, finally, uh, his resurrection, which shows his extremely elongated figures. And the, again, space doesn't matter anymore. All that matters is light and floating and uh, this terrific sense of, of, of arising in his, in his work. Now, um, <clears throat> there's another visitor, brief visitor to Spain in this period, and that's Peter Rubens, who makes his first, but not his last, visit to Spain in the year 1603. Now, by this time, the king of Spain was Philip III, and he was not much of a ruler. And really, the strong man who was behind his rule was a man called the Duke of Lerma. And even though Philip III did not like El Greco's work, Lerma had perhaps a more discerning eye and asked to have his portrait painted. I'm, I'm, oh, you'll see why I'm saying this in a minute. Rubens went to Spain and um, became beloved at the court. And the Duke of Lerma asked to have his portrait painted by him. Okay? Well, Rubens was also picking up styles as he went around Europe. And I think it's particularly interesting that a few years before, 
El Greco had painted this image of St. Martin and the beggar, which was in Toledo in 1599. And there's some dispute about whether um, Rubens saw it or not. But um, I don't know. When I look at these two pictures next to each other, there's no dispute in my mind. So um, OK. And then I want to talk very quickly about a, um, a genre of painting in Spain that I think is totally underrepresented in the world of art history, an incredible vein of still life painting. Uh, this is a, a, a man named Juan Sanchez Cotan, who um, uh, painted these incredibly precise, mathematically designed, humanistically thought out still lifes. They are really feats of astonishing intellectuality. Okay? Very few of his images survive. This actually is in San Diego, uh, so it's more possible to see than a lot of the other images we're looking at. Uh, working just a little later in this heritage is Francesco Zoboran. Um, this is a still life of his from the 1630s. And people talk so much about Dutch still life, how fabulous it is. But when you look at the surface texture and quality of works like this, they just take your breath away. They just, ah, oh, they're riveting. And just to move a little farther ahead, actually outside our period, I wanted to uh, introduce you to another of these still life painters, Luis Melendez, who uh, was painting in the next century, actually, but is another one of these artists who should be so, so well known. And he's, he's hardly known outside of, outside of Spain. Look at, those, look at those figs. Now, this was also this tradition of still life painting was very influential on an artist who would become the best known Spanish artist after El Greco, and that's Velázquez, okay? who really began using a lot of these still life elements in his work. And look at how well he has learned uh, the, how to create this shining pottery and the reflection of the eggs in, and the, um, the surface texture of the metal. Very, very adept at doing this. Um, one of his uh, most well-known early works, The Water Carrier of Seville, uh, certainly uses this still life and, and is very much incorporating that. And this is now, we're almost 40 years uh, before what most people will know him for, which is the work he did for the Spanish court. So he goes through many transformations himself. OK. Um, now I want to turn for just uh, five minutes or so to the New World. Because one of the places in which the most exchange of artistic ideas was going on, motifs and ideas, was in the lands of conquest um, of the Spanish and of the Portuguese and, and many other people. But I'm going to be talking primarily about Spanish ones here. And primarily about the uh, Aztec areas, this area of uh, what is today southern Mexico. Um, of course, in the course of the 16th century, there were uh, friars going over and setting up uh, convents and proselytizing to people, um, besides conquistadors going over and grabbing the silver and whatever else. Um, but there was a lot of religious art uh, that was being made uh, under the aegis of the Catholic Church. 
And one of the things that the Catholic Church has been good at since its inception is adopting the regional styles and motifs, holidays, all sorts of things of the cultures that it meets where it travels and bringing them into Christianity, rationalizing them with Christian holidays, Christian art forms, and in that way making the Christian religion more palatable and understandable to the people that they're proselytizing. So they uh, got to Spain, and one of the things they discovered was that one of the central, most central sacred features of Aztec culture was the axis mundi, the tree at the center of the world, okay, that was supposedly growing on the navel of their territory. And it was a tree that grew, that branched out on either side. It, was, uh, it grew from sacrifice. You had to keep giving it blood sacrifice to keep it growing. But it is also the tree from which humankind was born. And the Christians found that this could very well be rationalized with the cross. Okay? Very. Uh, you know, they, and so a, a whole genre of crosses were made in New Spain, in this new area, that basically turned the cross into a flowering tree. Here it even has the, uh, the skull at the bottom, as you remember, the, at the base of the, the tree was the skull. Um, and so these were adapted uh, and, and became very prevalent, a whole separate genre in, in the New World. Um, the Lord's Prayer, translated in Nahuatl in 1614. Uh, this is a, 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 a codex from the late 1500s over here. And this is the Lord's Prayer now that's been translated by a Franciscan. And I wanted to show you this shallow relief carving, shallow and, and uh, flat-fronted relief carving that was so typical of the art of the century before uh, our period, and how that's been adopted by local artisans into Christian buildings. And that uh, local artisans were encouraged to use indigenous styles to, um, to transform, to interpret subjects that they were getting from religious prints and, and things like this. Um, just a couple more. Uh, oh, and here is an instance in which a, a native stone carver has reinterpreted the, um, the cupids, the, the puti, on Catholic churches into Aztec warriors. Okay, so here they are with their arrows, and they're actually sort of protecting the land against the others who hadn't been converted yet at the, at the time. Skip that. Um, another art form that was highly sophisticated in this area at the time, native art form, was uh, working with feathers, creating all sorts of feather garments, paintings with feathers, things like this. When the Catholics came, they thought that this was an incredible medium, and I'm not sure why it didn't become more used in Europe, but this is a feather painting. Okay? This painting is made of thousands and thousands of feathers, and uh, I was hoping you could see the texture of it a little bit here, 
and some, some few of these remain. They're very delicate, um, but when you see them, they're extraordinary. Uh, another form that was uh, a, a hybrid form built specifically for this area was the open chapel church, where in the good weather, which was there was a lot more warm weather than in Europe, people could come and stand in this open area. Um, and so you have this basilica plan, but without a, a top. Uh, interestingly enough, it reminds me of the current state of St. Peter's as it was being built in, in Rome at the time, but uh, I don't know whether that idea came from there or not. Uh, and so here you see one of these open church uh, chapels. And um, what the, uh, and, and this is very interesting because along the border, you see this, these interlaced snakes, okay, these, these feathered serpents. Now, the feathered serpent was actually uh, involved in the place name for this, this spot. And it also was the symbol of a very central deity to the Aztecs. And it's quite unusual to think that it would be allowed to be placed on a chapel like this, except that, oh, and let me, here's the, this is the, the, the place name right here, except that inside each of the little uh, loops of the serpent, there's a pelican picking at its breast, which was the Christian symbol for sacrifice, and over every one of these, which you can barely see, are the initials I-N-R-I, or uh, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, King of the Jews. Okay, so this is a real melding of these, of these things. Um, eventually, the house form will be built out onto uh, this area. And just finally, I wanted to show you a, a, an incredible example of sculptural form taken over from Aztec sculpture and um, placed again on one of these chapels. Okay, so that's, that's it for me.